Please be seated. Good morning. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I'm not going to talk about St. Patrick. There's, there's too much mythology mixed in with the truth of uh, his story. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but we all uh, have to put a lot of money in the A-word jar because of that hymn that we just sang. That was a boo-boo. I think I picked that one. I think, yeah, Grad saying, yep, yeah, you did. Um, so sorry about that, but you know, it's hard to suppress that word and that spirit for people of the resurrection. Amen. <clears throat> um, I wonder if any of you have ever been the victim of a broken promise. Pro- probably all of us. Um, and when we're victimized uh, by a broken promise, our trust gets shattered and our image of that person gets shattered. Uh, let me tell you about a broken promise that happened to me uh, when I was about 20 years old, long before I met my dear bride. Uh, I met this girl named Megan and I just thought, oh, she was the bee's knees and I was going to spend my life with her and she promised her life to me and, and it was just so romantic, 20 years old. And then she moved to California. And, uh, you know, the plan was that eventually I would get, get out there and everything. And, uh, the next thing I know, she stopped returning my phone calls, saw on MySpace, for some of you, uh, old, old millennials will remember MySpace, saw that she had a new boyfriend. Yeah, raise the roof. And, uh, and I let her take my guitar, trusting that I was going to get out there and get it. And she kept it. That's my, that's my sob story of a broken promise. And then, of course, the Lord knew in his great sovereignty that he had a, a beautiful, uh, different bride for me years down the road who surpasses all in beauty and awesomeness. Uh, but we, <laughs> I, she didn't give me permission to say that, but I hope she's not mad at me. Um, but we all deeply desire a trustworthy presence in our lives. A presence that, a presence that won't break promises that are made to us. And what we see, particularly in Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 15 today shows us that because God's promises are trustworthy, we can move through life expecting to experience his presence and his provision. So follow along. We're going to camp out in Genesis chapter 15 for most of today. Um, this is actually one of the most important passages in the Bible, actually starting with Genesis chapter 12 and moving uh, through 15. These are some of the most imp- important passages in the Bible. And the reason is this Genesis chapter three through 11 is the world falling away from God and spiraling out of control and sin, rebellion, hatred, murder, all of those things. And Genesis chapter 12 is when God says, I'm going to do something about this. I'm not going to leave the world. I'm not going to destroy it by flood again. I'm going to do something about it for its redemption. And God lays his eyes on a man named Abraham. Abraham. And he said, I'm going to use you, Abraham, to start something huge for future generations. And through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. You remember this passage in Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abraham. Now, in our passage today, Abraham is still Abram. God hasn't changed his name yet. And little uh, just FYI, Abram means exalted father. I thought this was cool. And when God renames him Abraham, that means father of a multitude. And you'll see why he renames him that. So in Genesis chapter 12, God had promised Abram a great land inheritance. He said, I'm going to send you to a land and give you a great land. And I'm going to give you many, many descendants. He said this in chapter 12 to Abram. I will make of you a great nation. 
I will make you a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Think about the magnitude of that promise, that every family in the earth, that all the nations of the world throughout all of history would somehow inherit a blessing through what God does through Abraham and who his descendants are, who are the Israelites, right? Through the Israelites. So Abraham, Abram, gets up and he goes. He's completely obedient to God. Abram is a rich dude, as some of us would say. He's a baller. He's got a lot of livestock and he's got a good, strong family. And so God calls him and he says, all right, you want me to uproot? Fine, I'll go because I believe in your promise. And so he takes a bunch of his livestock with him and a few family members and they head off on a very, very long journey. And what you need to do this week in your quiet time with the Lord is read Genesis chapter 12, 13, and 14 so you see some of the uh, interesting things that happen on this journey. But it's a very difficult journey and they run into problems like we all do on any journey. And what you find out about Abram is that he is a mix of dreadful mistakes and faithfulness. He's a mix of dreadful mistakes and faithfulness. Can any of you relate? Thank you. (laughs) And what happens is what you'll see is that God rescues him even when he messes up. God rescues Abraham even every time he messes up because God's made a promise to him to be faithful. And now um, in the story, part of the story that we read today, Abram is somewhere, doesn't tell us between God called him when he was 75 years old and says, I'm going to give you descendants. Now, if you're 75 years old and God says, you're going to get descendants now and you don't have any right now, you're, you're going to be like, okay. Remember his wife, Sarah laughs about it. Um, and some he's now Abram is between 75 and a hundred years old at this point in the story. And he's still waiting for a son. Because without a son, he can't have descendants and the promise won't be fulfilled. And so Abraham's starting to scratch his head and question God's promise. We can all relate to the experience of feeling as if God is not showing up when we need him. We can all relate to that. And Genesis 15 is going to help us think through this. Starts like this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Do not be afraid. It is a word to shatter Abram's anxiety about the future. Some of us today in this room are going through situations and we need to hear that those words from the Lord. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. Because sometimes uh, all we have to stand on during our difficulties and our struggles and our suffering is that promise that he's faithful and that he's with us. And God reaffirms his promise to Abram. He says, your reward shall be very great. Abram, I haven't changed my mind. What's the reward? The land, the land that he promised him, the place where his family and their future generations would live and flourish. Now, Abram, here comes the pushback. Abram says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And I think there was probably passion in his voice. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. He stops for a minute and he says, you know what, God, I'm not done. And he goes on and he says, you have given me no offspring. And so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. The problem is this for Abram. Land is never for one generation. There needs to be future generations that inherit and steward and live and flourish in the land. 
And Abram is saying, you haven't provided for me, God. So how is this going to come to be? How many of you have gone to God and said, where is your provision? Or why is this happening? Or don't you care? And then you felt guilty after talking to God like that. You thought you ticked him off. (laughs) But you know what? The Bible reveals a God who enjoys dialogue with us, who wants us to press in deeper and ask and seek his provision and his presence. Jesus uh, told his disciples, you remember this? Ask and you shall receive. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. And all those words are in the continuous sense. He's saying, it basically says, keep asking, keep searching, keep knocking. The author of Hebrews says, God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He wants to be sought. He wants his blessing and his provision and his abundance to be sought by us. You see, he wants that. Our heavenly father wants us to boldly pursue his presence And his provision, he loves it. Why? Because it makes us draw close to him. That's his fatherly heart. Back in October when we went on vacation, I told you we took, I took, uh, Lydia to Disney. You know, I told her we're gonna go to Mickey Mouse's house. That's what I tell her. And, and and until we went, you know, for the weeks leading up, she, you know, she talked about it every day. Are we gonna go see Mickey Mouse today? Are we gonna go see Mickey Mouse today? She was pressing in, right? She wanted the reward that I promised her. And I was just delighting because I just couldn't wait to do it. I couldn't wait to give her the reward that I promised her. That's the Heavenly Father's heart. He can't wait to fulfill his promises for us. Some of us need a shift in our understanding of who he is on that in in particular. Guess how long God made Abram wait? 25 years. 25 years? Are you serious, God? And God's like, I don't know. I'm timeless. Doesn't make any difference to me. I don't really notice the time lapse. 25 years. And all Abraham has is that promise to stand on for all of those years. Sometimes all we have to stand on is that promise and that the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid. I'm your shield. And we have to take comfort in that, knowing that we are walking in intimacy with God is actually the best reward. That's the best reward. We already have it. Moving on. God's going to respond to Abram's uh, pressing in deeper. The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. It's a reaffirmation of the promise. You see, in the ancient world, if you didn't have a son, but there was a slave in the household, which is a very common thing in the ancient world, the slave, the male slave inherited, the, the he got the inheritance. And Abraham says, but God, you promised me a son. And God reaffirms the promise. See, God doesn't change his mind about his good purposes for us. He doesn't change his mind about that. Some of us, we think we've made too many mistakes. We've messed up our lives. I let my family spiral out of control. My marriage fell apart. I fell prey to an addiction. I threw away a good job because I was irresponsible. I mismanaged my money. And yet, God is faithful. And his promises and his love for you don't shift and change with the circumstances of your life. You have to read about some of the stupid things that Abram does to understand this concept. This is why you have to read Genesis 12, 13, and 14. Uh, this week when you go home, because you will read and you will think, man, are you stupid? Some of the things he does, he lies and gives his wife to the Pharaoh and says, you take her. She's just my sister because he doesn't want to get in trouble with him and be on his bad side. I mean, it's awful. It's awful. 
But here's the good news. Lamentations chapter three says this. His mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are new every morning. And some of you need to wake up tomorrow morning and realize the fresh start that God has for you. Moving on. God says to Abram, he brings him outside and he says, look toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. God says, Abram, just come out here for a second. I know you're struggling with this, but look up in the galaxies and look up in the heavens and look what I can do. I breathe and a million stars explode into existence. And by the way, you're going to have a lot of descendants. Reflecting on the majesty and the splendor of our creator God inspires faith in his presence and promises. And we'll see a shift in Abraham. Reflecting on the majesty and splendor of God inspires faith in his presence and his promises. You see, the problem is not that God's glory and majesty and splendor are not on display for us every day in our lives and in creation. The problem is is that we have lost our sense of wonder. We have lost our sense of wonder and we need to gain it back. And here's the thing, you have to fight for it. Because guess what? We live in the most distraction-oriented, instant gratification-oriented age that we have ever lived in. And you have to fight for stillness and reflection on the glory and the splendor of God that we see in creation. One, one author says this. He says, in short, wonder is captured in one word, worship. When we have learned what worship is, we have experienced what wonder is. So here's a question. Do you have a personal practice of worship? Now, of course, coming to church and singing and and praying together as a community is extremely important. But do you have a practice, a a personal practice of worship? For me, it's just, just, just unreluctantly raising my hands in prayer to God when I start in the morning and just giving thanks for all of the blessings of my life, my family, the breath in my lungs, the coffee in my cup, especially that one. And just, I just praise him. And I, and my, if my wife walks out sometimes at five 30 in the morning, she thinks I'm probably a lunatic, but that's just a personal practice of worship to say, Lord, you're worthy of being worshiped. And I'm grateful that you've given me another day to experience your love and your goodness. But that might look different for everyone. It might be walking in nature and talking to God about the beauty of his handiwork. Some of you do that, don't you? It might be singing singing to him in the car, listening to worship music on the way to work. There are so many ways that you can develop a personal practice of not just asking him for things in prayer, but of worshiping him. Friends, we were made for that. And our hearts are full when we worship our heavenly father. Now there's a shift in Abram. Verse six says, and he believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abram believed what changed, what changed him from going to protest to belief. What changes that he stakes his life on the trustworthiness of heaven's promise maker. In that moment, he stakes his life on the trustworthiness of heaven's promise maker. One Bible scholar describes this scene and he says it's so, so good. This is so good. He says, Abram has now permitted God to be not a hypothesis about the future, but the voice around which his life is organized. That's good. I'm going to give that to you one more time. Abram has now permitted God to be not a hypothesis about the future, but the voice around which his life is organized. What is the voice around which your life is organized? Is it the voice of fear? Is it the voice of anxiety? 
Is it the voice of my resources are too limited? I can't do it. Or is it the voice that says you are my beloved daughter? You're my beloved son. I can't wait to show you more of my love and my goodness and my provision today. Which voice is your life oriented around? <clears throat> Reckoned it to him as righteousness. What's up with this? Um, it might sound like God is saying, Abram, you know what? You've been on pretty good behavior lately. You've been really nice to Sarah and you've been really nice to Lot and you've been generous with your cattle and you've been refraining from cussing. And so I reckon that to you as righteousness. But you see, this is not a moral achievement. Abram's righteousness, God declaring him to be a man in the right, comes from the power of God that enables Abram to believe God's promises. It's all God. It's God who makes us righteous. It's God who gives us hearts that can open in radical trust and belief in his promises. Now, moral purity is a given for people who are following God. That's just a given that we should, there should be moral victory in our lives. But righteousness is reckoned to Abram because of his radical trust in the promise maker who's, who is good. You see, to be righteous, to be righteous doesn't mean like you walk around and you're like, oh, I haven't sinned in six years. That's not what it means to be righteous. First of all, you're lying. <clears throat> to be righteous is to be who God created us to be. Radically trusting, obedient, and cognizant of his presence and his provision. <clears throat> Here's the thing. How does, how does all of this relate to the gospel? And you know I was going to get there. <laughs> I always get to the cross because we have to. It's who we are. It's, 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 it's what our lives depend on. You see, our view of God makes a difference in how we live our lives, in how much we will be able to receive his promises and trust in his provision and his presence in the midst of even our worst suffering. How we view him makes all the difference in the world. And some of us have very distorted images of God. He's a taskmaster. Maybe for some of you, he's like the nun that comes with the stick and is going to... And that's not the God that we see revealed in Scripture. <clears throat> we need a knowledge of God's goodness. One author says this. I know I'm quoting a lot today, but there's just lots of... I've been reading a lot. He says this, pastor uh, and author Bill Johnson, he says, because God is better than I think, I must adjust my thinking and the tenderness of my heart until I live conscious of both his nature and his presence. And that awareness then becomes the reality I live from. You see, what we think about God is one of the most important things about us because it has everything to do with how we will live our lives. And we have a distorted image of God as just fussy and always frustrated with us and not really interested in being with us, we will live a life of fear and anxiety. But if we see God who he is in Scripture, a God who would go so far as to die for us, to make us his own, we can understand the Father's heart for us, that his love and his goodness and his mercy knows no end. Who is this God that is faithful with? Who is this God that is so faithful to us? It's the God, friends, that we see in Jesus. What did Jesus do? Why did Jesus, do you ever think, why did God come as a man? Why did Jesus come as a man? Why didn't God just like go like this and 
say, okay, some people are saved and some people aren't. Why did Jesus come as a man? He came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal the Father. Jesus says to his disciples, Philip, all this time you've been with me and you still don't get it. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus reveals the Father's heart to us. How is Jesus? Compassionate, friend of sinners, merciful, a healer, a redeemer. Man, he's beautiful, isn't he? In Luke chapter 13 today, the gospel passage, we hear um, the heart of the Father coming out from Jesus' voice. Now, here's what's happening. Jesus is starting to make his journey towards the cross. And we're getting these passages because we're in Lent. And Jesus is lamenting over his people, the Israelites, whose headquarters is Jerusalem. And so Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing See, we, we hear the Father's heart in that. The Father, the Father in heaven, weeps over people who reject him. He weeps over people who will not receive him, who will not receive the blessing of his salvation and the gift of his presence. He weeps. Your heavenly Father is seeking to give himself to you complete forgiveness of sins, to reconcile you to himself. And, and for some of you, maybe this has been a vague idea that you've been like mildly attracted to, but you haven't, haven't actually thrown your heart open to that love. And he's standing. He's standing there waiting to be let in, weeping over the rejection and the ignoring. That's the heart of the Father. See, some of us, We've opened our heart, but some of us need a reminder that what Jesus did for us shows us that God's promises are trustworthy for all of eternity. On that cross, he won our inheritance for us, an eternal inheritance in a new creation where there is no death, no suffering, no pain, no tears, nobody at odds, no Democrats and Republicans, just Jesus and his people. In glory, he's won that for us. Do you not think that he will provide for you along the way and desires fellowship with you along the way? Let me end with this. Let me read something that St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says this, talking about God's love in Christ. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Let's pray. Father, we need new visions of your goodness and your glory and your love for us. We need that here, Lord, and we want to be a church that opens ourselves completely to the work that you want to do in your heart, in our heart, from your heart to our heart. So we ask you, Lord, that you would take distorted images away that only come from the evil one who wants to feed us lies about who you are, who wants to tell us that you don't really care and that you're not really present, that you're reluctant to give us what we need for the journey in this life. 
And God, I ask that for those who have been keeping this uh, idea of Jesus as Lord and Savior and friend at a distance, that you would just open hearts right now, God, to say yes to him. And we ask, Lord, that you would just, by the work of your Holy Spirit, release to us and in our hearts a better and deeper understanding of your love for us and so that joy would increase that joy would increase. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.